Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen, and on this week's episode, we welcome the founder of R2 Design, Robin Rotman, to discuss the tricks of unlocking user value and how to know when UI meets functionality in perfect harmony. Robin shares her background and journey in the design industry, which encompassed software engineering, design, and product development, and why she was motivated to specialize in product design and development early on in her career. We also ask Robin to share some of the highlights from her role as a lead product designer and developer at Grubhub's agency business, where she got to work with some incredible brands like Sweetgreen, Kava, and Fresh & Co. Next, Robin shares how her time at Atlassian and Trello truly shaped her understanding of unlocking user value as a product designer and what advice she has for other founders looking to bring the same functionality to their startup through great UI. Lastly, Robin shares her tips on how to balance the need for beautiful interfaces with the functionality requirements of a product as an early stage startup founder. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Robin Rotman from R2. Thanks for joining me in the tank today, Robin. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. You know, Robin, I'm very pumped to have you join us today, given how many iconic brands you've worked with over the years, like Sweetgreen, Grubhub, Kava, Fresh & Co., among many others. But, you know, I want to go behind the scenes on the scoop on how it's all done. So before we dig into all that stuff, I would love it if you can give our audience a bit of a background on how you got into the creative and design agency industry. I think the first thing to know is as much as I can go and kind of relegate my career to the creative aspect or the product design, graphic design. I don't know if this is officially a word, but maybe I'll coin it today. But um, I've always kind of run tribrid. So that means I've always been involved in product design, um, software engineering, and then anything that's customer facing. All three have been really important in the progression of my career. And, you know, maybe today other people will relate listening to this or um, it can give them some insights. My first foray in my career was actually with Curious George. They found some statistics somewhere at the um, publishing agency that I was working for about how parents basically had stopped reading with their children because so much of today's day and age is digital. You know, before bed, maybe we play a game together. I was tasked with taking a book and turning it into an ebook, And I was thinking, that's not enough, right? To just go and move it uh, analog into digital, there has to be more to this. And that was the first time where I went, huh. What if I create little interactive elements that the parents and kids can do together and just create a new experience? That's not an app. It still feels like you're reading, but it's a little bit more fun. And uh, this was a new software from Apple at the time. And so no one had really done this. I ended up winning like all these awards and parents were saying how fun it was for their kids. And that's when I realized, huh. I have the opportunity to impact someone on the other side of the screen, not only using design and making something aesthetically nice, but really thinking about how someone is going to use it. Then I'll kind of just jump to the other things. Uh, my next jump was to Level Up, which was acquired by Grubhub, became Grubhub's agency. That was my first time realizing that as a designer, I have a direct impact on revenue. And I think that's what designers really need to realize. And that's what companies and CEOs need to realize. It is our job to unlock customer value. So you can have the best idea in the entire world. You can have the coolest branding. You can have the greatest marketing. But if you funnel all those people down to the product and it's not unlocking that the customer can go, I like this or I enjoy this or I get value from this, then your products move. So um, at Level Up, I was doing that over and over and over again, creating features that offer value, working with the sales team to be able to keep the business going. And then the final piece is getting to work at a company like Atlassian and Trello and working with a best of class design team. I mean, that was for me the, the final tier before I was like, 
I'm going to go at this on my own. Wow. Interesting. I mean, like a tribrid, never heard that. I would say you're kind of like the triple threat, software engineer, designer, product, all that into one. You know, the Curious George story is amazing because I read Curious George now to our daughter and I love reading the actual book, but hearing about what you had an impact on and try to building the bridge between that user experience for, you know, Gen X parents maybe and, and some of the older school ones is pretty cool, I'd say. Thank you. Yeah. And so I remember Level Up as well. I mean, I lived in Boston, as you know, and uh, Level Up was there. It was, uh, I think it was headquartered there. And they had some amazing, you know, simple features of ways to find restaurants, find deals happening there. There were so many great like promotions being pushed through the app. And it was just super simple for you to find a great place to eat when you wanted it. So the user experience was great. And kudos to you on, on leading the team there. You know, what motivated you though, to specialize in uh, product design and development and sort of move away from the other stuff? When I was in college, I feel like I'm just talking about myself like I'm an old person, but this really is how crazy tech is and, and how quickly we move as a society where UX wasn't really a thing. Like I never studied UX. Like I said before, with the Curious George stuff, realizing that design can be, you know, a powerful power for good. It can also actually be a pretty big power for bad, but um, knowing that you can impact people to make their life better. Again, going back to that one, if I can get parents to sit down and um, have an increased chance of reading with their children, what an honor to be able to do that. So the first thing was that, that, that caught my attention with the industry. It's like you can impact people. And then from the software development side, it's so interesting. I think a lot of times we think about you know, you have graphic designers and then you have UX designers and then that gets handed off to development. It makes it really hard to be a really great designer if you don't understand the technical limitations of how your stuff is actually being implemented. So it's really important to me and I'm self-taught in development to actually learn how that transition was happening. And then if I had to do QA with my developers, I could do that as well with them. So it, the motivation is one, my engineering kind of mind into just um, helping businesses and then helping customers. Yeah, it's interesting you describe it as like three different buckets, but they're all obviously intertwined. And then you throw QA on top of that. When we had the ability to work in office, you could literally walk over to the software engineer's desk and be like, why did you code it this way? Because it's really not possible to do it with our UX team. And you know, obviously design team have their own creativity and visions for things. You know, how do you think people can solve those problems in a remote world? Do you think it's as easy as it was when you were working in the office at Level Up? I think some of the things are easier now, like in terms of technology itself. Because the collaboration software is like Figma and stuff? A thousand percent. Like we were designing in Photoshop, right? Which is so painful that thinking about doing vectored items in Photoshop, but that's kind of just a little designer nerdy tangent. But other things, and I got to tell you, we still very much aren't there, but prototyping. Do you know how much easier it is to prototype something and play with it in a development environment? I'll give a weird little, you know, fun tip here is I'll tell my customers sometimes is when we're designing things, I can go and prototype each interaction. So time consuming and not worth really anyone's time. But if I went and created the same experience in something like a Squarespace that has built in animations... Do you know how much easier it is for my stuff to come to life? So there's ways and hacks that you can use other softwares that can be free out there in order to create that experience. So, you know, you were asking about remote. It's really about taking advantage of the technology that's out there and being able to share, like sharing and collaboration is absolutely everything now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the speed at which you can prototype and test and iterate is obviously way faster now than when it was when you're doing stuff in Photoshop. But just going back to your level up and then Grubhub agency days, you know, how did your role as a lead product designer and developer shape your approach to overall design flow when you now understood the, the process that came from from the software engineer all the way through to the end user? When you're working at a company that has one specific product, right, and doesn't even have other products that use the same design system, or let's throw anything out there. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm making a website for Kleenex. I just saw a Kleenex box in the corner. So that's why I thought of it. You don't have to go and scale your work. You don't need to think about how a a number of brands who have very different one aesthetics and two, there might be two people who use your software at a team and there might be a thousand. So being the lead at, at Grubhub made me think about what do different scales of companies require? So with Grubhub, you could have a mom and pop shop, right? They have one pretty static menu. Maybe they have a lasagna, you know, meatball subs, whatever. Now think about Starbucks and their level of customization. So it's just a completely different mentality around thinking at that level, being strategic, and also being mindful of the experience of the end user, of the tiny mom and pop shop, and the massive you know companies that you're working for. So that's the first part. And then the second part, which is a little bit um, appended to that, I like to think about my impact from a business perspective. And like I said before, it is my job to predict user behavior and unlock value for the customers. That's what keeps businesses going. So my role also was to create a really strong relationship with the sales team and hear what they needed in order to keep the company going and and building for that. I love hearing that connection across the entire value chain of developing products. You know, for some of our listeners who maybe don't understand what Grubhub agency is, everyone knows Grubhub as the digital order taking and, and restaurant platform. But what does Grubhub agency do? And what were some of the notable projects that you worked on during your time there? When people think of Grubhub, they think of the ordering platform, right? Let's say um, Kava is a great example. Sweetgreen is a great example. Um, oh my God, there's there's so many out there. Think about food apps. In order for them to develop an app like that and create all of the technology from the get-go, that's the custom ordering, showing their menu in a certain way, the account pages, onboarding, sign up, all this kind of stuff. For them to build all of that from scratch is crazy and it's expensive. So in the same way that when you open up your phone right now and you see weather, Apple does not necessarily have their own weather app. They're doing integrations with probably weather.com as is, as is Android. So Grubhub agency is that base level information that can get wrapped by a company like Sweetgreen or by Kava. So it is the base foundation or in you know development speak, we say SDK, software development kit, that gets built off of it. They can add their own features. And so my job is to build that base level, to build those base features. And if they want to do any extra development, that's that. Very cool. So it's like a white label solution from a B2B SaaS perspective, but for the restaurant apps. Okay. So was Street Green's initial and still status quo app powered by the Grubhub SDK? Sure is. Yeah. That's impressive. And was that a big business for Grubhub? Sweetgreen was, I think, one of our very first. And so if you look at the original um, app, oh my God, it's so different from now. Again, so many trends have have played a role in there. But we always used to joke, you would scan, you know, you'd have a QR code show up. And we used to joke because it, we'd go to a website and it would say people scanning QR codes.com and it would go nothing to see here. And now since 
right? COVID, like we live in a world of QR codes. I also remember telling my parents, you know, I work in fintech and we're going to scan our phones to pay again. How crazy is it to go and say that at any point people were thinking, yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. It's funny because the, the, the saying everyone has when they leave the house is cell phone, wallet, keys. Well, now it's just cell phone because your, your phone can power up your car and it can be your wallet. <laughs> it's pretty crazy, which is a blessing and a curse when you lose that thing. But besides that, you know, what attracted you to your next role when you joined Atlassian and Trello? And what was that experience like working on such a popular and amazing product? First and foremost, I had outgrown um, my time at Grubhub. I became a lead and then I actually became a full-time software engineer. I am originally Canadian and I live in the States. And in going through the green card process, you can't just um, get up and leave a company, right? You are very thankful that a company sponsored you and you also want to do your due diligence. I'd been there for a very long time. And um, yeah, so I became a, a software engineer in order to just grow, grow, grow as much as I could. But I knew it was, I knew it was time to go. I had maxed out my growth and it was time to make myself uncomfortable. And so Atlassian showed up for me and I remember thinking, this is the creme de la creme when it comes to designers. You go to the company and you see on LinkedIn who works there and you look at your, those portfolios and you're thinking, I can't even believe, I still laugh. I still have imposter syndrome that I got into there in the first place, but I was attracted to being able to work alongside designers that would, you know, make me feel so small, not emotionally, but in terms of my craft and that I could get to that point. And then the second thing is I was in love with Trello. I mean, my entire life was based in Trello. And so getting to work on a product, right? When you hear about people who are workaholics, I think so often that's actually just an indication that you feel so fulfilled by your job. And so knowing that I could get to obsess over something that I was already spending so much time in, uh, that was really exciting for me. Yeah, I've listened to the podcast on you know the the whole story of Atlassian and and how the founders were just so obsessed with product and design uh, and trying to build things that people really wanted and things that were kind of on the side. You know, Trello was like kind of a sidebar for them until they obviously rolled it into the main product of Atlassian. But they were two separate for a while. Obviously, working there, you faced a lot of challenges. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced? And I'll talk about maybe the overhaul of Jira's Align product as well and how you address those problems. In working with size, a company is a various scale now with R2. I've noticed that there's variations of cultures around shipping. Some of them like to do an incredible amount of due diligence in making sure that they've accomplished perfection, right? And I'm not even just saying waterfall. It's just like the amount of details in a small thing. And that's what tends to happen. Or that was my experience at Atlassian. For example, I know recently they have been promoting that they've released dark mode, right? When you think about, <laughs> when you think about innovation, uh, dark mode feels like something seven to eight years ago, that's an expectation. Or I remember specifically with Trello, they released the opportunity to go and have different colors on their badges. These feel like things that can be shipped so rapidly and iterated on without really ruining the final experience. And so I think my biggest challenges with Atlassian was the actually amount of time, and I would say red tape, versus having a hyper shipping culture. When you're that big and that successful, you can take on risk. It's okay to not be shipping as rapidly. It's not maybe a huge hindrance to your revenue. Um, and you can get it right. But knowing for me that there's customers 
that just need these things and we can get them out faster. That was definitely a pain point with Atlassian. And then with Jira Align, there's a thing that I've learned in working closely with my clients. Now I call them passion CEOs. And a lot of times these passion CEOs have a really good idea. And they think if they go and speak to a developer, right, whether that they've hired someone or they're using, you know, someone they found on Upwork, whatever it is, they're like, oh, if the developer creates the product, we're good to go. We've done it. And then what happens is they end up coming to me. I think about when my dad used to say he was a great dentist and he would see people who find cheap dentistry and then they would have to come back and spend money. Is developers, some of them are fantastic at this, but their core job is not to be able to think about user value, information, hierarchy, and all of that stuff that I've talked about before. So with Jira Line, it was an acquired product built by developers and it just had the user experience is like nothing I've ever seen before in terms of pain points. So just getting their design system going, not even thinking about UX, but just that buttons feel similar, that headers that I can just even get through the pages. Um, that was a really big challenge. So that was my long answer. No, that's a, well, let's talk about some of the sort of like metrics and the return on investment that a lot of developers, you're right, just don't understand. So how do you recommend founders or business leaders try to connect the dots on how good or how much work a UX design or product uh, development needs, or how should they even test to see whether or not it's going to hit the mark? Like, what have you learned from your time with Grubhub Agency and obviously Atlassian to say like, okay, those are, those are bad signals. We need to ignore those signals and focus on these signals and this type of data before we go back to the developers to get them to rebuild this and recode this and then to the UX and eventually design. There's, there's, there's a number of comments I can make about something like this, but so often we get into this mindset when we're on a team and we're trying to solve something and like, it's kind of, it's kind of manic and, and kind of chaotic. And what often you need to go back to high level, let's simplify. What is our business goal here? What is our user goal here? And I know with my clients, with whatever scope we have, I actually have a workshop on my website I just tell, you know, my customer to, I can go through it with them, but go through a little workshop and come out with your business goal and your user goal. Let that become the strategy and then go from there. Stop with the, like trying to throw spaghetti at the wall. You're going to end up, you know, just farther away from what your strategy is. And so I think we were talking a little bit about metrics there. Once you have those goals, you create a hypothesis. I wish I had a good example for you right now. I'm, I imagine I could find one, but it would end up being maybe silly. But create a hypothesis. If we do this, if we present this on the page, what is the hypothetical implication for the business? And what have we been able to do for the user? Tie that to metrics. If we see a user hovering over, if we see X amount of users clicking, it all really just comes back to strategy at the end of the day. And let that dictate instead of thinking about granular pieces of the page. Yeah. So we try to give our companies like a focus on a North Star metric, obviously, that determines the entire value for the firm. But every department has their own OKRs and KPIs that fall within their scope. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't bubble up to the North Star metric, like Airbnb's is nights booked, 
you know, Facebook's as connections, all those types of things, then it's really not going to be impactful. Now, small little tweaks here and there, dark mode and things like that, those can obviously work towards, you know, user retention metrics or engagement metrics. But the following of like where people click and stuff is where you have to start collecting the data initially. But eventually, if you keep it or not, is exactly what we're saying. It's like it's got to bubble up to the main impact on the fir- on the fund. And I'm sure there were a lot of great ideas that come, came out of your time working at Atlassian. But because it was such a big, you know, successful company, a lot of th- small things maybe just didn't move the needle for them to really incorporate into the product, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we can talk about MVP and you can think about MVP as an entire page experience. You can talk about MVP as a module on the page. I'm dealing that with one of my customers right now. Like they're a pretty large client for me, but they're, they're pretty well known. And we're talking about overhauling their entire account experience, which is really important. They're within the, the medical field. Anytime you're communicating something from a patient perspective, They have to be really, really careful. But we all agreed today. I sat there with 5 PMs and I said, we can go back and forth all day. Do we feel all in our hearts? If we put our user hat on and we put our business strategy hat on that we can put this out as an MVP and learn from here. Mm, That's the important thing that I think a lot of people lose sight of because they come from a consulting background. They come from a a larger, you know, maybe public company background. You know, that testing sandbox MVP stuff has got to come back into effect because it's a a bad way to innovate if you're only thinking about the way the status quo has been done. You know, let's jump into your new role, though. You know, you started R2. Uh, it's your new design agency firm. Congratulations. Uh, it looks like it's going exceptionally well. You know, why did you decide to start your own creative d- design agency? And maybe tell us a little bit more about the products and services that you've set yourself up for that hopefully will set you apart from other industry partners. With passion CEOs, this is this term that just feels appropriate because I get to work with a lot of founders. Sometimes they're not founders. Sometimes they're people that are, you know, more, let's say, director level. There's only a handful of options for them, it feels like. There's either hiring internally, which a lot of businesses can't necessarily afford to do. And it's also not always a great idea. You don't necessarily want to have someone on a full payroll when it's just you need a feature here or a feature there. So it felt like there was either hiring internally, working with massive agencies, Upwork, or it's like pretty hard to find um, a company that is capable of development, of design, of graphic design. And then the last piece is actually enjoying the person that you get to work with. That was the core piece of it. And I always go back to, and I even have this on my website, I go back to my Canadian roots. I always think about the core interrelational nature of growing up in Toronto with um, with the diversity and the generosity. And when I say generosity, I'm not talking about, you know, pain for people. I'm talking about how can I help? And for me, that was so important in differentiating myself because I watched friends who had small businesses. Some of them got to spend, you know, loads of money and had great investment on huge agencies. And some of them went the Upwork route and some of them went to a smaller agency. And I was just thinking the quality and the fun, I haven't seen it. And I have so much to give from my experience in understanding my direct correlation with revenue, my ability to hypothesize user value and just be a fun person to work with. And I said, let's do it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is it's is an interesting proposition. You don't often see a design agency who understands, one, software development at your level, two, the understanding of user experience and collecting all those metrics and pushing it back through the, the channels that came to be, but also really understanding like how the smallest companies iterate to the fastest and biggest companies. That's a very uh, interesting, as you say, tri, uh, trifecta for you to have to offer for your customers. You know, but the one thing I always love to talk about when I meet with people on the creative side is like, how is your process about developing brand identities and eventually the website and the app for their business done? Like, what's the secret sauce? When I first start onboarding a client, and this is before I've even agreed to work with them, because I, whether they choose to work with me or not, I want them to take this information away and do whatever they want with it because it will only better their business. I have a workshop that I do. And it usually ends up being 45 minutes to an hour. And the questions run the gamut of things in the, what is your goal and what needs to be done in the next two to three months? Because some of these companies are in survival mode, right? And so the next two, three months are absolutely imperative versus the next year. And then I have questions like, what does success look like to you? And I'm not talking about metrics. I'm talking about what does what is it like to enjoy this experience? This workshop encompasses all of that. It is so important to me to ask questions around what does it feel like to have a fun partnership and who are you? I get so much information from them. I remember asking a client recently, if you were clothing and you were going to meet with a customer, what are you wearing? And he says, I'm wearing Vans and jeans. That tells me so much about how he envisions his relationship with his customers and who his customers are. And so I use that workshop and I come away with this wealth of information, not only metric focused information, but really quality information about the feeling. And that is my base point. And we use that workshop throughout the entire process. So I wish I could show a screen right now, but it's, I have the workshop, then I do hypotheses. I do the competitive analysis. I do wireframes. And then when it comes to a brand, I do a similar thing. I start pulling out adjectives. So everything comes from that user and business strategy alignment workshop. You know, you've obviously got the engineering background and the understanding of how software gets developed. You know, what role does data play in your design process and how do you incorporate it into your decision-making process and how should other people think about what data to collect when they're coming up with their own design and product enhancement uh, visions? It depends on your survival mode right? How much risk can you take on? If you don't have that much risk, or sorry, if you can take on a ton of risk, you can play around, you can A-B test for as long as you want. I think what's really important from a metric perspective is again, referring to before where it's what is the high level hypothesis, hypothesis here, being mindful of how much time you have to iterate, actually roadmapping your work and saying, okay, we have two weeks We are just going to find a group of 40 friends that we can go and send something out to that's a prototype. And if they do, if 50% of them do this, then we keep moving. So metrics are really important, obviously, but you can use them in a way that is really honed to what your timeline looks like, to what your users might need. Um, And also, this is the kind of stuff that if you're working with a good product designer, Or anyone who's in data analytics, you can say, I just need you for a short period of time. We're looking for someone to take over three weeks. Can you just help me out? Like outsourcing this kind of stuff is a great, great option. 
Yeah. So, I mean, with obviously the invention of more uh, access to uh, data tools, which we invest in at Ripple, you know, we're seeing more and more use cases of product leaders, uh, RevOps and sales leaders getting access directly into their data stacks to be able to pull out information on their businesses and their users without having to go through a data scientist uh, or a product manager to build that for them. And that's really exciting. And one other comment I want to make in there is so often we talk about the future. I often like to get a baseline Um, with all of my clients. I want to see, even if they just have a Squarespace website, a Wix website, I want to see as much as I can if they've added Google, Google Analytics, getting a good baseline and not just thinking about the next hypothetical jump is going to be so important to always be sharing that with all of your team. So everyone is on the same page of where you have to get to. I don't know how far you would have gotten though, looking at our Google analytics and our first Wix website when, when I started Ripple, but here we are now. So it's, it's made it a long way. Obviously there's function versus, you know, beauty when it comes to this sort of struggle between designers and software engineers, but you obviously straddle both sides. You know, how do you help founders and, and leaders balance the need for beautiful interfaces with an actual functional product requirements, because it's always a struggle I find. My best analogy here is it's a house. If I'm building a house from scratch, I want to think about how I'm functioning in the house. Is there enough room if I have three kids um, to be sitting at the kitchen counter? Does my living room have enough place for a sectional because we're very focused on watching movies? That's the user experience. Paint, fixtures, carpets can all be added after. And what they do is they create the feeling behind it. Always focus on your UX and everything else will come naturally. And I'm having to do that right now by there's a client of mine and their UX has, has lots of, lots of work to do. And we were talking initially about aesthetics and I said, we got that. We understand who your customers are. We can go and do a facelift that way, but let's get that base functionality smooth and working. And then we'll create the rapport, the trust, the feeling with the aesthetics after. Do not focus on visual design. If the UX is good, they will they will just merge. Yeah. So I, I kind of exactly related to building a house. You know, I don't know about you, but when I go into a new house, the first room I want to go to is the furnace and electrical room. If that room is spick and span and all the wires and, you know, uh, you know if everything's labeled properly, they're perfectly connected to the walls, there's no nothing hanging, you know you're in for the rest of the stuff to look really good. And it's the same thing with a, a company. If, if their finances are in order, if their you know teams are properly registered and all their you know documents are properly labeled, you're in for a really good ride. Obviously, they may not be as fast moving as some other companies who all have like releases every day, but a lot of that stuff fizzles out and it breaks down very quickly when stress test. And so uh, that's the way I think about it. I don't know about you, but I love to go into a new house and rock, walk right into the furnace room. I check shower pressure. That's my big oh, thing. Yeah. Because, shower pressure. Yeah. What a pain to go and buy a house and then your showers suck. That's that's my personal thing. Yeah. yeah fair, fair enough. You know, can you elaborate? Um, you spent some time, obviously, uh, giving back to a lot of the places that helped get you where you are today. You know, you're a vi- visiting lecturer at Boston University, teaching UX and strategy, and also helping conduct some portfolio reviews for them. So how has that helped, you know, give back in your experience? from uh, from where you've come from to where you are now? I love going and lecturing. It makes me so happy because I think about when I was in college and how much information I was missing in my education um, just because the 
program wasn't there. And so often when I go back and I lecture with these students, really getting to show them what it looks like. I, I always think about your college education as learning the alphabet and then you're putting to words together in your career. So coming in and actually showing them how to focus because they're creating designs, right? How to actually create user value and stop thinking about just putting things on the screen that look nice and think about the flow of information in portfolio reviews that just kind of blows their minds when they go, Oh my God, it's so simple as making this smaller, this bigger, just rearranging a couple of things. So that's the first thing really getting to impact the way that they can actually connect with users. And then the second part is, Oh my God, I could say this a thousand times over connections and referrals are everything. And I always tell them just go find people. I went to Boston university message people who went to BU say, looks like we went to the same college. I'm new to the field 15 years down the line. You never know if that person is going to come work with you, recommend you. I just really hype up that never apply to your first jobs without a referral. Uh, so just them getting that understanding of how important connections are can make a big difference to them. Yeah. I mean, small decisions could lead to massive outcomes uh, if you just put your mind and time toward. That's why we call Ripple Ventures because we believe in the ripple effect and we see it happen all the time. So speaking of advice, you know, what advice would you give to aspiring product designers and entrepreneurs who are looking to make their mark in your industry? I have to say that so much knowledge out there is one, either free or very inexpensive. Um, I do have to call out, I hope I'm not butchering his name, but it's Joe Natoli. Uh, he has a course on, I think it's on like on Udemy. There are so many incredible courses in the same way that you would go online. And if you're looking for a, an item of clothing and you look at reviews, if you find a course within the last two years, because really that's kind of how important it is to, to, you know, check with time because new software, if it's $15, watch the course. You will get so much information and can apply it so quickly. And a lot of times I hear when people are getting into it, they're trying to figure out their identity within all of this. I remember struggling with that. And then I realized I'm not doing this minimalist Scandinavian design. Can I do that? Sure. But I think color is underrated. So it's a form of creativity. It's a form of artistry watch the courses and just let yourself go and then find a good mentor. You know, speaking of online courses, I'm glad you brought it up. You know, obviously there are incredible amounts of information, ways for you to self-teach yourself to be designers or things like that. One of our best designers in our portfolio is completely self-taught. Didn't go to any, you know, trained schooling, no Parsons, no nothing. Looking back, if you were to enter into the uh, university stream at BU now or go down the self-taught route, which one would you choose? I feel so bad saying this because I know my parents work so hard. <laughs> I know, right? I have to say that I think so much of my experience now, and let's be honest, what percentage of people do you know who are currently working in the field that they studied in college? Besides professionals in medicine and legal. Exactly. So based on education itself, I think I probably would have been good at self-taught but that being said, there's uh, stigmas about having a college education and you learn so much more. You know, where I went to school, the basic courses in English 
are absolutely imperative in the way that I can communicate now. I don't think all of my liberal arts courses were super fantastic and helpful. Um, So in terms of honing in, I'm lucky that I knew what I wanted to do. I probably would have been successful doing that. I feel it's fair to say. I think what I say and what I would say to my kids about university today is that it brings structure and it brings a, a forced network into your universe that you have to interact with that you can't do online. And so, yes, you know, you can learn a lot of the skills online and by just doing, um, you know, the 10,000 hours rule. But I think the actual power of like human interaction, building structure, building uh, routine around your day-to-day task is something that universities do a great job of. Um, so that's something you can't just get from a downloaded online course, but I won't, uh, I'll make sure your parents don't listen to this episode. Also my entire career started off because I was a TA in college and the woman that I TA'd for who I still adore connected me with a student. That's how I got my first job. I mean, going through the immigration process and having to get sponsorship, that is because of where I went to school. So Again, pros pros and cons. Yeah, there's benefits that were not expected or listed on the uh, BU website when you applied, but that came out of it because of you know uh, spontaneity and just relationships that you developed over the years. So obviously, those are things that you can get value out of too. You know, going back to R two and your design agency, what's the long term vision there, and and what do you hope people can take away from finding you know a chance to work with you? In terms of long-term vision, uh, it's funny because when I started this, I didn't want to just jump into things. I actually spent three or four months, maybe it was even a little bit longer than that, building R2 and thinking about what it would look like and thinking about how I wanted my clients to feel instead of just jumping into it. And so I always want to stay lean. Right now, I've been fortunate. I'm not even that old as a company and I've been able to to hire some incredible designers. And so I always want to stay lean, mean. And I always want to be a revenue generating machine. I know that's so corny, but not talking about generating revenue for for me and for our two, but I love having a client come in and I've watched my clients explode. It's just been so, so crazy. And knowing that I have that impact and it's really influenced by design and strategy is just unbelievable for me. And then the final thing, going back to the Canadian part, Maybe this is a little bit of a play on words, um, but I always like to have my roots in kindness. Um, Roots is a play on words. I don't know. If Americans don't know roots, you need to know roots. That's amazing. And how can people find you and get in contact with you and the firm? This is the kind of stuff that I love to do. Different people like to communicate in different ways. Ideally, just throw time on my calendar. That is my favorite thing. I don't want someone to have to go back and forth and find me. I have 15 minutes available. That is the best way for me. But you can text me. I have a business text number. I have howdy at R2Design, my email. I have my website, whichever way, LinkedIn. You know, we have all the possible ways that people could ever want to access us. But yeah, going right to my website, grabbing my Calendly forward slash R2 um, or an email are probably going to be the best, uh, best options there. I love that. Love having the open 15 minute calendar invites. That's fantastic. You know, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off your favorite podcast. Dear Gabby, Gabby Bernstein. I love her. Very good. Second, uh, favorite newsletter or blog. This is going to be a weird one, but Reformation, the women's clothing there, even if I'm not buying the clothing, that copywriter is an absolute star. I look forward to reading the funny things that they write every day. And it just reminds me of the power of, of a good brand and marketing. And I, I love it. 
It's called Reformation. It's a blog. It comes out every week. Reformation is a women's clothing brand. So if you subscribe to their newsletter, it is fantastic. So good. That's new. Favorite tech gadget? Um, My car. What is it? I am a a Tesla driver. I feel a little Model 3? I have a Model 3, but I've been waiting for three, four years for my truck now. So come on, Elon. Congratulations. Favorite new trend? I love that businesses, I think of Burberry, are going back to their, everyone just completely voided of personality. And it created these trends of hyper-minimalism, which what's the point in that? Then there's no um, recognition. So brands going, especially luxury brands, going back to their origins and getting something more interesting to go and look at. So I love that right now. Give me an example. The Literally the Burberry one. Um, oh. I think if you, maybe I can give you a link to go and put in the show notes, but there's someone who has aggregated all of the companies who are moving less away from, do you remember when Staples did this and they moved into this little, they got rid of like the actual staple or is it a clip? Yeah. So companies there, I haven't seen that they've moved back to, but there's a bunch of brands. I wish I very cool. So I did see the one thing of like how all the like fancy acrylic uh, and italic logos had all transformed back to like the black and white, very bold standardized logos over the last several years. Have mm-hmm. you noticed that one? Yep. Yeah. It, it, it's working, but it's it's like, it's, it's not minimalist. It's more like just like bolder. Yeah. I, I think trends are really funny. Um, and I have a very love-hate relationship with trends because I find that that feeds into small businesses and you get a lot of, I want something that's clean and airy. And I'm thinking- do your customers want clean and airy? Probably not. Really all they see all day and then they can't differentiate. And who are you in the field, right? I never, I, I never thought uh, asking someone about their favorite trends would be a triggering question, but it sounds like it is for you. <laughs> Next is your favorite book? Lois Lowry, The Giver. I don't know why. That. It was a book that we must have read in middle school. And it's all about a utopian slash dystopian society and what it would be like if we put people specifically in essentially in the careers from a young age that we believe that they had a proclivity to. Huh. Do you think your parents did that to you? No, because if they that probably was, wanted you to be a dentist, I would have been like my siblings. <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> and last but not least, your favorite life lesson. First one is um, just breathe, right? A lot of times when you are given a piece of information, agree or disagree with it, if you take a deep breath and you understand that you have the option to choose again, you can approach it in a really healthy way. Um, And then the second thing is, which it leads into this one is I always do my best to leave people, things, experiences uh, better than when I found them. I try. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us in the tank today with Robin Rotman, founder of R2 Design. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.